This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals, which is now reopened for enrollment. If you're ready to break free from diet culture and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, and author of the forthcoming book, Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating, which is available for pre-order now. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 201 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Davinia Noel, a psychotherapist and fellow certified intuitive eating counselor who's based in the UK. We discuss her process of relearning intuitive eating and how her work as a therapist influenced it, why using food as a coping skill isn't a bad thing, how diet culture creates shame, the need for diversity among intuitive eating counselors, and so much more. I can't wait to share our conversation with you in just a moment. It's such a good one. Davinia is so lovely. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question, which is from a listener named Kate who writes, Hi, Christy. I love your podcast so much. I feel like it helps ground me anytime I ingrain fat phobic diet culture thoughts start to overwhelm me. It's helped me feel less alone as I try to heal from the trauma of living in a larger body in a culture that is so anti-fat. Thank you for your work and getting the health at every size perspective out there. Today, I've been freaking out a bit because my doctor let me know that my blood test results came back as pre-diabetic, and I can feel the sense of internalized stigma and overwhelm setting in. My doctor told me for now just to watch my carb intake, and that was about it. I asked her about berries because I love them, and she replied that, again, they are carbs, and so not to eat them. I feel left out at sea and confused. I also would like to mention that I feel I do have disordered eating patterns. I lean toward restrictions, skipping breakfast, and binging on sugar. And I've been working on trying to heal and improve these patterns. I also have two friends, one who has recovered from her eating disorder and the other whom I fear has created one. She's been dieting for two years, lost a ton of weight, but no longer eats carbs and has spoken about her hair falling out. I guess I'm giving you this background info because I'm concerned that my diagnosis of being pre-diabetic could push me further towards an eating disorder. I'm wondering if you know of any health at every size resources for people with pre-diabetic diagnosis. Any book or perspective to offer on this. I'm finding I have so many questions going through the list of foods that I commonly eat in my head, wondering if I should stay away from it completely or if eating, say, pizza here and there is okay. Are some things okay to eat earlier in the day and not at night? And even though I'm larger bodied, I also am active. I do lap swimming and dancing regularly, and I want to give my body what it needs to perform well. So no carbs, really? How would that be possible? Thank you for your time, and I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts and ideas of resources. So thanks so much, Kate, for that great question. And before I answer, just my standard disclaimer here that these answers and this podcast in general are for informational and educational purposes only and are not a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. 
So first of all, Kate, I'm sending you so much compassion because I know how scary it can be to be told that you have something wrong with you, right? To be diagnosed with something and to have your doctor tell you to cut out carbs, especially is triggering when you have disordered eating already. So I really want to empathize and I can totally understand why you'd be freaking out. The good news, though, is that there actually is not anything to freak out about, even though people are making you feel like there is. The pre-diabetes label is actually pretty problematic. So there's very strong evidence that pre-diabetes is not even a real diagnosis. It's actually just a case where a medical condition that is not a diagnosis in and of itself is getting rebranded as a disease, largely because of pharmaceutical industry influence, because drug companies can sell people drugs for this new condition. Drug companies love to create new conditions, new diagnoses in order to sell more drugs. I'll link to a great scientific article about this in the show notes for this episode, really going over the clinical basis or lack thereof, really, for the diagnosis, the so-called diagnosis of prediabetes. And this article is a great read because it discusses the influence of the pharmaceutical industry and how diabetes experts that promote aggressive treatment of so-called prediabetes actually are the ones who accept large sums of money from diabetes drug makers. It's really insidious. It's really problematic. And I think it gets to the heart of a lot of problems in our culture and in our medical system. So it's an article from Science, the the journal Science, and we'll link to that in the show notes for this episode. Definitely check that out. But as the article discusses, the World Health Organization and other medical authorities have rejected the label of prediabetes. They've rejected that as a diagnosis because there's no solid evidence that quote-unquote prediabetes actually leads to diabetes for most people. So for most people, they don't end up getting full-blown diabetes. They stay in this state of quote-unquote prediabetes or even go back to having quote-unquote normal blood sugars. And so people might have some fluctuations, but the idea that prediabetes is like sentencing someone to diabetes is just false. And also, as this article discussed, the supposed treatments for so-called prediabetes are not even found to be effective. And the people who developed this label of so-called prediabetes, especially one of them who used to work for the American Diabetes Association, has since gone on to say it was a mistake to create this label of prediabetes that it has done more harm than good. So again, highly recommend checking out this article. We'll link to that in the show notes for the episode. But now, as for what to do about your health and your condition... Because while prediabetes isn't actually a real diagnosis, it does seem like your blood sugar is slightly elevated, right? That's what the lab work showed. Categorizing it as prediabetes is this false diagnosis that's been trumped up by the pharmaceutical industry, but the actual blood work is real that it shows slightly elevated blood sugars. And that can be a result of binge eating. And so if you want to help your blood sugar stabilize, you'll need to work on healing your relationship with food and healing the restriction that's driving the binge eating. And guess what does not help you heal your relationship with food or the restriction that drives binge eating, but actually does the exact opposite in most cases. That would be cutting out carbs, right? Cutting out carbs makes things worse in most cases. So in other words, your doctor's advice to cut carbs is likely to make your disordered eating way worse. And you're already struggling with that. 
you said yourself that you're in kind of a restrict binge pattern. And it sounds like sugary foods are the ones that you tend to binge on. And that's completely normal. And by normal, I mean common and understandable and very much the case for many people. So you're not alone. For most people, the foods that we tend to binge on are sugary and carbohydrate rich because those foods have a lot of quick energy. They give us quick energy and our brains and our bodies are wired to gravitate towards those foods, those types of foods with quick energy in times of famine. And that's what dieting and restricting are, is famine, right? Your body does not recognize the difference between a diet and a famine. To your body, dieting, restricting, any kind of disordered eating is famine. So instead of cutting carbs, what I would really recommend is working with a dietitian who specializes in intuitive eating and health at every size and who understands disordered eating and can help you heal. And I have a great list for you at christyharrison.com slash providers. That's christyharrison.com slash providers. That's my short list of dietitians and therapists and doctors that I trust who are health at every size and intuitive eating focused. And the dietitians on that list would all be very helpful for this situation that you're in for helping you recover and heal your relationship with food, not cutting out carbs. And I would just say, you know, you absolutely don't have to cut out berries or fruit in general or sweets or grains or starchy vegetables or any of the other carbohydrates that you love and that we all love that we're all wired to love. You can eat those foods every single day and still be in good health and still work to stabilize your blood sugar because prediabetes isn't even a real diagnosis. It's not a disease unto itself, and it certainly doesn't sentence you to a carb-free life, nor does actual diabetes for that matter. So even people with actual diagnosed real diabetes can still eat carbohydrates, can still eat sugar, can still eat fruit. They just, you know, might need to learn how to manage those things and balance them with the medication that they're taking or other foods that they're eating. But it's really not mandatory for anyone to cut out carbohydrates, whether you have real diabetes or this ginned up diagnosis of prediabetes. And Kate, really the underlying issue here for you is not what you're eating, but how. And I think that's true for so many people, right? You're eating in a disordered way right now, and that's going to have effects on your physical health. So the way to heal those physical health symptoms is to heal your relationship with food. It's not to cut out foods. It's not to blame foods. And, you know, you're not alone in this. Diet culture creates disordered eating for most of us. And then when we have physical health consequences from that disordered eating, diet culture loves to point the blame at food. And we've all gotten our heads so turned because it's like, look over there at the food. We turn our heads to look at the food and we don't see what's right in front of us, which is diet culture. That's the one that did it. That's the thing that caused this disordered relationship with food and the physical health consequences in the first place. So I always tell people the first line of defense, the first line treatment that we should try to take on most health issues that are are thought to have anything to do with food is to look at the person's relationship with food, look at how they're relating to food and how they're eating, not what they're eating, but whether they're restricting, whether they're binging, whether they're using compensatory behaviors that are causing disorder and havoc in their relationship with food and in their physical health. And so for you and for most people listening, that's really where I would start on this and most health conditions, really. 
So I hope that's helpful. And I just want to say you don't need to freak out. It's okay. You can work with a dietitian who gets this stuff, who specializes in intuitive eating and helping people recover from disordered eating. And that's really going to be the better path for you, I think, especially given that you're already in this place of struggling with disordered eating and feeling like the mandate to cut carbs is now making that worse. So if you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And then if you want to ask me any question you want and have me answer it a lot more quickly than I can here, you can join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. It is now newly updated and open for enrollment, and I'm so excited about it. Now you get even more hours of audio and written content, not only teaching you the principles of intuitive eating in depth, but also going into a lot of depth about the sneaky manifestations of diet culture and helping you learn how to fight back with tools and science and evidence-based practices. In the course, you also get an exclusive monthly Q&A podcast where you get to ask me your own questions and listen to hundreds of answers I've given already to other participants. There's like several hundred hours in there already of answers so that you can work through all kinds of different sticking points in intuitive eating and put it into practice in your own life in a way that helps you fight back against diet culture and not get sucked in again. When you join, you also get access to our private online community that's exclusively for course participants so that you can have real-time guidance from me and my team, as well as hundreds of other great folks who are on this intuitive eating path alongside you. And some really exciting news I have, which is that now the community is a private forum housed on my website instead of being on Facebook. So we're migrating over there as I record this. And by the time this episode is out, we'll be in the new group and not in the Facebook group anymore, which I am doing for lots of reasons. But one of them being that a lot of people were not joining the Facebook group, you know, probably half or more of the participants in the course hadn't joined the Facebook group because a lot of people said, I don't do Facebook. I deleted my Facebook account. I don't like their privacy practices. I don't like their terrible policies of selling people's data and all this stuff. And I get it. I'm with you. I'm not a huge fan of Facebook either. I'm kind of looking for ways to divest. And so bringing my course community over onto my website instead of on Facebook is one of those ways that I can help divest from it and help more people, more importantly, get the community that they so need and deserve. People are loving these new updates so far, too, judging from all the fan mail I've been getting from existing course participants. One participant named Louise said, thank you for taking the group off of Facebook. I support your decision and agree with you completely. I would like to see more businesses follow your ethical practices. A participant named Jennifer said of the new module content, thank you, Christy. The hard work that you and your team put in definitely shines through. I am so grateful. And a participant named Lauren said, I love these changes. So if you're ready to join these folks and break free from diet culture and reclaim the life it stole from you, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. And right now for a very limited time, you can get 30 bucks off the new price using the offer code psych. That's P-S-Y-C-H. Just go to christyharrison.com slash course and use the offer code psych P-S-Y-C-H at checkout. And now without any further ado, let's go talk to Davinia Noel. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. My early memories, I would say, were really positive. I was brought up by my great grandma, which I, yeah, I I speak to a lot of people and some people, you know, they've never met their great grandparents. So I feel really fortunate. She was a traditional Jamaican woman. 
food was the something that we celebrated. We had a lot of food around. We had a lot of family parties. There was a lot of cooking and I, I, I loved it. I just didn't really think about food or my body. I just remember being a kid and just eating what I wanted. It was just normal for me to have Frosties for, or Rice Krispies for breakfast when I wanted to, to have it. Food really brought us together. We shared food and it was a very much a feeding type family. So the beginning was really, really positive. Things took a bit of a turn when, so I was with my great grandmother like during the week and then on the weekends, I would go and spend time with my mum and, or, or my dad. And she was very much into Jane Fonda, 80s spandex <laughs> type videos and Mr. Motivator, just all these <laughs> All oh, these yes. <laughs> classic. <laughs> yeah, and I guess I started doing them with her. So I think I must have been around three or four, five, you know, trying to do these videos and copy, you know, copy her. And then I started to notice as I was getting older that, okay, oh wow, she's she's dieting, she's restricting food. And I think those were like the little seeds when I started to maybe notice that, hmm something's wrong with my mum's body well she thinks something's wrong with her body what does that say about me so early memories positive but as as I started to get older I started to feel a bit insecure based on what I noticed around me did she ever say anything to you about your body or was it just purely you picking up on how she felt about her body so I went through puberty at a really really young age and I just remember being maybe seven or eight and feeling like these little I don't know like nuggets in my chest almost <laughs> and just feeling like, oh okay like nobody else has this and getting hips starting my period at quite a young age and as my body started changing I started to get comments from like my mom and my family members about, oh, you know, you're growing into a woman. Oh, look, oh, you're putting on weight. And as with puberty, I was slightly bigger than my peers. And people started to point that out. And I, I that started, you know, the beginning of like puberty in my teenage years of being extremely self self-conscious about my body. Yeah, so just that comparison, that idea of you're bigger than other people, having people comment on it. Did people say specifically, like, you should lose weight? Or was it just pointing out that you were bigger? At that time, it was mainly pointing out that I'm, you know, that I'm bigger. I did have relative, actually, this, the memory is coming back to me. I did have this one cousin. So she's a lot, she's a lot older than me. My family is very, very big. I've got loads of aunties and uncles. I've got about, I think about 14 if I count them all, all together. So I've got cousins who are way older than me and we've got a big diverse range. And I had a cousin who was maybe about 15, maybe 20, 20 years older than me. And actually she always used to tell me, oh, you're, you're fat you need to lose weight, you're bigger than the rest of your cousin. That memory just actually came to my mind. But yeah, there was there was actually those comments of, of just being aware that I'm different, I feel different. And what women do when they're different is try and not be different. So, and that is trying to diet and, and exercise. And there was like a little bit of teasing at school from like the other kids. 
about it was mainly like a couple of boys but just them pointing out that I'm bigger than you know the, the rest of the other children that sounds really painful it was and I think that that was probably the start of me getting into my disordered eating so as I was going through this I I started to do things like wear baggy clothes just trying to just do things so that I just wouldn't be seen so I would be as small as possible because I I wanted to be invisible I didn't want people to point out my difference or to make a to make comments about me but when I think about it in doing that I was probably drawing more attention to myself because I was wearing these big baggy tracksuits in the middle of summer you know I'm not hot no no I'm not hot and, you know and I'm really really hot actually <laughs> yeah so I used to do all these things to be invisible and that seeped into I guess how I felt about myself and my ability to make friends and my ability to speak up for myself because I was so scared of being seen and when I was around 11 years old we went through a really traumatic time as a family my brother passed away really suddenly you know we just sat home and the police came and told us it was just completely sudden he wasn't ill or anything so it was like a real tragedy and around that time obviously everyone's like preoccupied with like my brother and the the funeral and I that's when I started to use food as a way to like control my emotions and that's when the diet mentality really kicked in I think when I started like restricting and and dieting so it was like almost like laced with I guess you know some, some trauma when I really started to diet and, and restrict what I was eating. I often think about that how so many people have a period in their life where they might turn to food to self-soothe in a period of trauma. And especially for kids, I think that's like one sort of easy way to comfort yourself when you might not have other coping skills. And it's such a benign coping skill. It's such a not something to be ashamed of. And yet our culture makes us so ashamed of it. And especially if you'd already been told that your body was wrong or too big before that, then like any sort of feeling of like, oh my God, I'm eating emotionally just becomes loaded with so much shame and so much backlash of like, oh, I have to have to diet. I have to stop doing this. Definitely. And I think it makes, you know, as we know, it makes it so much more worse when you're doing something maybe to self-soothe and you're being told, no, this is wrong, this is wrong. And then obviously you're feeling bad. So you want comfort even you you want comfort even more and you know eating food is not the worst thing that you can be doing you know it's it's really not but it is it's laced with so much guilt and shame so after we went through that period and I started restricting we started to heal from from what happened and you know and, and I lost all this weight and I was feeling fantastic I was you know people you know that's when people start complimenting you and saying nice things about you and and when and when I say I was feeling fantastic it was a very superficial okay this is what I think society want me to look like but inside it was just like no I'm still not good enough I still need to work harder to to be to be even smaller so there was like inside my self-worth never came it was just trying to do all these things to please people but I just didn't feel 
ex- I, I wasn't really accepting of myself, I think. Right. It's based on external validation instead of like that external validation never got in there to sort of assuage the part of you that really needed validation, which makes so much sense because it's really external validation based on changing who you are, changing a sort of central aspect of who you are, aka shrinking your body. No, definitely. And when I think about a lot of that period of my time, I was trying to shrink myself because I was scared of being seen or, you know, or, you know, or or heard. And fat phobia makes you frightened about being visible. It makes you scared to be seen. And a lot of the time I felt that if I was, because obviously when I did that diet, the weight didn't last. And then I went through that period of going up and down and up and down and, I just felt that, gosh, like, you know, I'm not really worthy of having a voice, you know, maybe people don't want to talk to me. And it's just like, when I think about it, it's just I, when I think back to those times, I can't believe it because it was just diet culture, like, it's so dangerous. It had such a big impact on me. And I see it now on other people where it just makes you so petrified of being ridiculed and being judged. Yeah, that you don't even you self-silence. It's like you don't even take the risk to to sort of put yourself out there at all because you're so afraid of judgment, which is so painful because then it it's so isolating and it tells you the only way to be worthy of these things is to shrink yourself, which then that never happens, you know, because diets don't work. And so it's like <laughs> you're chasing this unattainable thing. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds really painful. It was, it was a difficult time I guess at, you know at the time you know you're, you're you're living it so looking back on it I just I just really want to go back and just hug my like teenager self and say you know you don't have to do all of this you know it's going to be okay and ideally I would love to do that with, with all teenage you know <laughs> girls now even boys that you know you're worthy how you are right now in your here and now body god I know I wish I could go back and hug my younger self too just try to take away some of that pain. I mean, it's really sad that for so many of us, no one in our lives was able to give that to us. No adult was able to kind of see it and model it because I know for me, like the adults in my life, when I was a kid having so many struggles with self-worth, not even related to food because that didn't come until later for me. But, you know, as a kid, it was just a lot of like, am I okay? Am I enough? And nobody could really reassure me of that because I don't think they believed it for themselves either. I don't think they were able to see my pain with that because they were locked in their own pain. Yeah, yeah. And that's and this is the thing. And when I think back to my mom dieting, and even now she's 60, and I've given her the intuitive eating book. So yay! You yay. Know, she's, <laughs> she's reading it and oh, you know, she's putting she's putting some things to practice. It's a bit diety at times, I try and correct her. But you know, yeah. before that, she still is you know feeling so unhappy in her body. And I just think like, gosh, like you're at a time in your life when your kids, you know, they've left, you know, you can go traveling, you can do whatever, but you're still so preoccupied with your body and 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 I guess yeah it it's just it just makes me quite sad that she has to experience that. And I know obviously parents not really being there for us emotionally and saying that we're enough is, you know, is is because a lot of the time, like you said, you know, they don't feel that way or they never had that themselves. And so I'm glad to be in this 
period of time when we're changing the narrative and we're like actually no like you know you are worthy how you are you don't need to change you don't need to diet you know you can speak up you can be visible you know you don't have to wait for anything you can do this right now oh that's amazing i know and if we could have only heard that and i think that the fact that people can hear that now and that hopefully there are parents listening to this who are modeling that for their kids or, or striving to maybe even, you know, I know there's some teenagers even who listen to the podcast. So it's like, I think people are starting to get that message at a, an earlier and earlier age when they need it so that it doesn't, the, the self-doubt and the self-worth being contingent on body size doesn't get as entrenched as early because, yeah, up until Maybe five years ago, I know my mom was still dieting too. Same when I started to do this work, I was like, okay, let's talk. <laughs> like, let's, let me tell you about intuitive eating. And that has, has helped change things for her. And she's in her 70s. And there are people in there, like, I mean, I hear comments about grandmothers in their 90s making, making these body negative comments about themselves. And it's just like, when does it end? So if we can start to intervene, younger and help people not have to go through life like that, how much more life can we be giving people? How much less pain can people have? I think that's that's really a beautiful thing about this movement. No, definitely. And just thinking back, you know, I, my mom was my dieting partner. So as I went through like the yo-yo dieting and, and, and whatnot, me and her, we joined a slimming club together when I was 16 and you know we'd go every week and you know get on the scale and watch people cry or you know or shout for joy because they've lost weight or gained weight and uh, when I think about it I just thought that was a nice two hours a week that I could have been <laughs> learning to play an instrument yes. or watching a really good tv program or or whatever and I just think that was a way that me and her, I guess, essentially, were bonding. We, we thought that this is what mother and daughter are supposed to do. They're supposed to lose weight together. They're supposed to share disordered eating tips with one another. I guess, you know, we did that for for years, for years, on and off, on and off. And when one diet wasn't working anymore, we would go to the next diet club and the next diet club. But what happened with me was that that really started to feed into my self-esteem and whether I lost weight or not depended on if I was worthy or not and I have memories of like you know after going on the sad step I'll call it you know the scale so after standing on the sad step and seeing that I haven't lost anything coming home and you know feeling like my life was <laughs> falling apart and you know and and doing that doing that with a parent I'm just so grateful <laughs> to defeating you know is, is, is here. I really am. Yeah, because I think doing it with a parent is so normalizing of that behavior, right? Especially when you're you're still living with a parent, you're still young, you're still minor. It's like, it just reinforces that idea that this is what you do, this is how it is, this is how it should be. And yeah, that can really damage your self-esteem because it makes it so contingent on what is this? I love that. The sad step. Like, what does the sad step say to me today? And and how does that define my worth? Instead of recognizing that your worth is nothing to do with that and is everything to do with just being inherently a human being who has worth and value for who you are. 
Yeah, of course, of course. No, no number should have control over you like that at all. Is you know, it's just it's not just not deserving. And I think where things really turned for me was when so. Oh, I, you know, I wish I just found intuitive eating earlier, man. So <laughs> think about. So I was um, preparing for my wedding, and obviously all the pressure. Brides need to look like this. They need to be that. So I was doing what I need to do to try and slim down for my wedding. And then after I got after we got married, and um, we got married abroad. So we got married in Jamaica. We came back to England, and I just I just couldn't keep up. I just couldn't keep up with the with the diet mentality anymore. Like biologically, my body was just like, no, that's it. You know, you, you, we're done. It's enough. That. Yeah, yeah, we're done. And that's when I started to go through a bit of the binge restrict cycle. And I started to feel like, you know, why can't I control myself around food? What's happening? You know, what, what, what's going on? And I just, you know, all I need to do is make sure that I don't eat five cakes. Like I just, I thought that I had control over the situation when actually, no, my body was just like, sorry, that's it. You had your good run of messing me around and now I'm going to feed up and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, it really, it has a mind of its own, doesn't it? And that's I, like, I always say, it's why we're here today as a species because our bodies have that mind of their own where they just won't stand for it at a certain point and like will do what they need to do to get themselves nourished and you can't have any say about it anymore. And that's why diet, I feel like it's so insidious that the early diets seem to quote unquote work, especially if you were talking about that first one when you were really young, where it was just like the compliments pouring in and, you know, it was easy and like, it wasn't this yo-yo thing, but then of course the weight comes back and it, it gets harder and harder each time. So it makes you think like, oh, if I could only get back to that one that was so easy and what am I doing? You know, I'm messing up because I'm not able to stick to anything or whatever. When in reality, it's just designed to do that. And the fact that it gets harder and harder over time just is biology. That's just how it's, how it is, how we're designed. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I think that is what the diet culture is hiding from a lot of us, you know, what they don't want us to know is that actually it's not your willpower. It's not because you're weak. It's because your body is programmed to, is programmed for survival, is programmed to keep you alive. And it took me, I think it took me, took me a while to, to realise that. But, you know, I did realise that actually the reason why my body is rebounding like this, the reason why I can't stop eating. And we have um, something in Jamaica called bun, bun and cheese. It's like, it's like a hot cross bun. Do you know, do you know what a hot cross I think, bun is? Yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's really nice. But basically when I was, when my body was just like, all right, we're going to feed now. That's all like, I couldn't stop eating bun and cheese. Like I was just eating so much bun and cheese because, you know, my body was just like, you know, I, I, I want the best for you, Davinia. And, you mm -hmm. know, the best for you is to eat this food. Oh, and it's so good and like nourishing and just gives you that satisfaction that you're needing, which I'm sure that was probably a food that was deemed off limits or like don't eat too much on a diet, right? Yeah, it was one of those foods that, I told myself that you can only have this 
in Easter, you know, you could, you could only have a slice of this in Easter and it has to be a really skinny slice. And, uh, you know, you could only use low fat butter with it or low fat cheese. Like there was just oh. so many restrictions <laughs> with me <laughs> having this. But now, you know, I can have it and it's not it's not a problem. But it was one of those things that was completely restricted. And I think because I wasn't expecting my body to react that way, it was very frightening for me. And I did, I think what Isabel Fox and Duke calls the hunger and fullness diet, where I was just like, all right, all right, body. So you're saying that I have to eat cakes and pasta and bun and cheese, but all right, so I'll eat you, but I'm definitely going to stop when I'm full. I'm definitely going to stop at a number six or a number seven on the hunger scale, um, on the hunger and fullness scale. So try to do the hunger and fullness diet. And then it was like, okay, this is not working because your body doesn't work like that either. (laughs) (laughs) Especially when you've been restricted. It's like, we're just going to go ahead and keep eating. That's nice (laughs) that you're you're saying we should stop here. But now I'm going to keep eating. Of course. And I think that that I think that is a really scary stage for people that are new to intuitive eating. Just that stage right there where, you know, you see these guidelines and you feel like, okay, I'm gonna follow this really rigidly, but you know, your body is still healing, even though you might have one idea, you really have to listen to your body in that stage. So hunger and fullness diet didn't work. So I thought, all right, so thought, let me try the love yourself to lose weight diet. Classic. <laughs> it's a modern classic. <laughs> um, and I think I heard about that. Well, that I heard about that when I was in my dieting stage, where I remember I got to a point when I was like heavily restricted, and my group leader of the of the slimming group said to me, "Well, you know, it's willpower. So if we really want, if you really, really want to lose the weight, you'll lose it." Like you know, she said to me. So. I kind of had that in the back of my mind that so if I really, really want to drop this weight, I just have to really love myself. And if I really love myself, then I can do this. And again, I realized that it doesn't it doesn't work like that. Yeah, love yourself and you'll release the weight. Oh. <laughs> so how did that play out for you then? What did you what did you find in trying to follow that diet? No matter how much I loved myself, um, it just wasn't going to happen. And I really had to, I think, surrender. I had to be really vulnerable. And I really had to trust the intuitive eating process. It was really important for me to be able to say, you know, let me put weight loss on the back burner. Because right now, my mental health is more important than anything. I can't keep trying to fight with my body. This is not helpful for me. My body is talking to me and it's telling me that actually it doesn't want me to die. It doesn't want me to restrict. It wants me to eat. It wants me to nourish it. It wants me to sleep. It wants me to look after it and respect it. And I think some people can do intuitive eating and it might be pretty they might be able to pick up the guidelines and it might be okay. And then I think there are some people where it takes longer and then there might be some people like me that do a bit of a dance. You know, you step forward for a bit, then you step a bit back and then it's forward and back. And I feel like that was a bit of my journey. I was doing a bit of a dance until I was just like, okay, I've seen the research. I've read the book. I I did your course. 
and it got to the point where I had to say to myself that I am a person who's deserving of respect, compassion, self-care, no matter what I look like. And I have two options, really. I could either shame myself about my body and live a life of shame and keep wearing those baggy tracksuits or wearing things that I'm not happy in and being really upset and angry with myself. Or I can stop listening to what society is telling me society is telling me that I'm not good enough and live my life as awesome as I can because in this moment right now this is the body that I have I cannot change it right now in this moment and I wanted peace of mind over thinness and I think I just had to take each step day by day and really listen to my body I think in the book they talk about this interceptive awareness and I really had to develop that and really listen to myself and be really kind like I feel like self-compassion is such a big part of this journey because when you're in diet mentality or you're having anxiety thoughts or there's a lot of self-hatred going on or a lot of self-loathing a lot of blame a lot of guilt and you really have to have a lot of compassion and kindness for yourself and I think I really had to I really had to work hard to develop that and see things a different way to how I've been seeing things and the way I've been doing things for a long period of time in my life. Yeah, those self-loathing beliefs were probably so entrenched. It started at such a young age for you too. So it sounds like it was probably a lot of like mental reprogramming that you had to do, just coming back and coming back to those ideas and choosing again and again to live a life without shame instead of to continue down that path of shaming yourself yeah no definitely it was a choice and almost a bit of um what we call it work is um cognitive restructuring where I have to look at my thoughts and actually you know actively challenge them and sometimes I had to do that sometimes I just had to notice the thought and say okay that mentality you're showing up today well I've got another thought for you and this thought it means that I'm great and I'm, I'm deserving of love and it's okay to eat this but it, it was it was something that I had to be really purposeful about until, you know, you can easily, you know, you start to spot people's conversations. You start to you start to notice diet mentality around you and you can easily you can quickly fire back and talk back to it. But in the beginning, I had to make sure that I had to really notice those thoughts and, and pick myself up, up on them because, I got to a place where I just I really wanted to heal you know it it really meant a lot to me to put my mental health and put my and just just to put myself first really and to really respect myself. How did your career as a therapist play into all of this? Were you already working as a therapist when you started down this path of or when you had that reckoning with like coming back from your wedding and just being like okay I guess I can't diet anymore and how did that background inform your intuitive eating path so I was working as what we would call in the UK like a low intensity therapist and then I started training like as a high intensity therapist so when I was going through the throes of this when I was doing my dance when I was like getting closer to intuitive eating I just was just finishing up my my training as a high intensity therapist and what I saw was that everything that we did or everything that I guess I was learning I should say was very medicalized 
the way that we treat eating disordered or disordered eating in the UK or as part of my training was quite warped actually because there is still a focus on weighing making sure that you're weighing I think there's even like some CBT for weight loss and so forth so it was very confusing because I think at the time I really wanted to learn all these tools learn all these techniques but then some of the things that I was hearing and some of the things that I was seeing and even amongst other professionals was still very much diet mentality so it was a bit of a challenge at first and sometimes even now like I have to when I'm in like training and so forth I talk about the research the research that I know about and talk about the importance of like you know sometimes not not um, bringing clients, making sure that they're developing, you know, unconditional permission to eat and body respect and, you know, things like this that we don't talk about. It's very rigid and it's very much way, eat this, do that. So in the beginning, it was a bit confusing for me. But then I, as I start to speak to other professionals and I listen to podcasts, I see that all of us, we're all fighting against this medical mod- model. We're all fighting against diet culture within our within our professions. Yeah, it's it's a tricky thing, right? When you're in a profession where continuing education or the system that you're in, national health system seems like such a entrenched thing. It's hard to go up against it. It's hard to make waves or do something different when it's just like, nope, here's what you do. This is how we've always done it. This is the model that you're in. So it's like about kind of getting creative and finding little ways to bring in this anti-diet stuff. No, definitely. And even on the NHS website, they've got ways of, you know, have this many calories to lose weight and do this to, to, to lose weight. And so... It's really confusing because, you know, this is a company that I work for and and I do love the National Health Service. I feel like we're really lucky to, to have it, but it's still so entrenched in diet mentality. And I know a lot of these things are coming from the government because at the moment we're in this weird, I don't even know what to call it, but we're in this obesity epidemic, like in the, in the, UK at the moment where what everybody's talking about and if you're fat you'll die and you'll get cancer and it's really really scary so when people come to you and they've got an eating disorder they've got disordered eating they're really scared of being of being fat and you have to really unpeel like all these layers almost like an onion to try and actually explain that I guess it's you know you're going against the grain but you know trying to explain that actually you can be healthy at any size and explain that you know the impact that society has we're in a really weird place with the government at the moment and just how they are treating larger bodied people and and, and fat people and it's so stigmatizing and I feel like that's the That's the part of it that just galls me is like, we know that weight stigma is harmful to health independent of body size. We have all this research showing that, yet governments are not taking that in and taking that seriously. If they do have any sort of awareness of weight stigma, it's that, well, weight stigma is a barrier to weight management. So how can we get people to not be stigmatized so that they'll lose weight, which is like 
facepalm. Like that is not <laughs> what that's not what that research is for. I mean, even though some of the research is written that way too, because diet culture exists in scientific research and it informs the way people do research and frame their research. And so like the way that people frame it sometimes is like, well, it's a barrier to weight management. We need to learn how to help people not be stigmatized so that they can shrink their bodies because somehow weight stigma is making people fat. Yeah, exactly. Which that's not helpful either to have that framing. Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're completely, you're completely right. And if we think about it and we think about the research, children who are teased or grown up in phobic families or they are more likely to have difficult relationship with food and pointing at people and telling them and you know putting blame on people and and stigmatizing them or stigmatizing food is not helping anybody to develop a healthy or good relationship with, with food at all no it's really not it's just doing the exact opposite how did you decide to go into intuitive eating counseling? I know you did your your training to become an intuitive eating counselor. How did your own relationship with food and your own work as a therapist bring you to that place? So I did a lot of work to get me to the point where I was just like, right, I feel good. You know, I'm feeling I'm feeling better. It was, you know, like I said, doing your course and having like an intuitive eating counsellor and then also being in in work and just seeing how people talk about diets and weight and the stigma and, and just the confusion around the impact that diets really have. As I started to learn more, I just felt I just felt compelled. I just wanted everybody to have this information. I know there's only one me. I can't spread it to the world, but it got to a point where I was just like, everybody needs to know that you know they don't have to be fighting with food and they don't have to diet and you know you can develop peace with your food in your body. So I got to that point where I felt really strongly about that. And then I started to look around and look at the, just look at the intuitive eating space. And even like being a black therapist in the UK, you know, that there's, there's not many of us. There's always, I'm always like one or one of the, or there's like maybe two, you know, where I work. And as I looked around the intuitive eating space, I saw that actually there was nobody that looks like me really you know nobody who was black or in a larger body and I guess it's because of my experiences with diet culture and I think not just only diet culture but just the pressure I had to I would say be western you know be even though I'm not white to try and you know be white have straight hair be slim be really academic do this do that just be amazing breaking down that and diet culture I just felt like it was really important to add that voice um to to the anti-diet and the intuitive eating community to maybe if anybody else has been through the same as me show up and say you know what I feel you I'm here you know I've also gone through it I feel like there needs to be more diversity in this field like people of different sizes and colors and races and and even from you know different countries you know I feel like at the moment like there's not really I I, I, actually I don't even I don't know another maybe black intuitive eating counselor at all and I think I just really wanted to share another narrative share another story and 
if people feel and make people feel comfortable um if there is anyone that's that's gone through the same story feel comfortable about coming to somebody like me that might understand what it's like to break down oppression as well as diet mentality that makes so much sense and i know you're talking a little we were talking a little off mic before about the sort of idea that you weren't just up against diet culture but you were also up against all these other forms of oppression and specifically pressure to be sort of exceptional like you said to be perfect and be academic and be be white even though you're not white like to fit this mold of what a quote-unquote good citizen looks like yeah and I think that's ideally why I think why my family might have been like picking at me or why my mum you know was going to these diet places with me because I think deep down there's and there's anxiety around you're already black and you don't want to add another layer of oppression to yourself it's already difficult for you you already have to work 10 times harder make sure that you look the best that you can you know make sure that your hair's straightened and that you're thin and that you're academic and that you've got an education. And I think because my parents, they never went to university and I was like the first person to go, it's almost like they are really pushing me to do things that they never did. They want the best, that they they want me to really achieve and to do the best. But it's hard, it's it's a lot of pressure on, on me for a long time because of that. I just felt like I wasn't doing good enough. It's not that they never told me. They, you know, they, they never said to me that, you know, you're doing terribly and you need to do more. But I always sensed in the back of my mind that things are going to be 10 times harder for me. I need to work 20 times harder. I need to try and be the best. You know, I need to be seen. I need to get an A in this. I need to do that. And just juggling so, so many pots. Yeah. And that's, that makes so much sense. The idea that you're already oppressed, you're already feeling a sense of oppression based on one identity. And so try to push yourself to not have any other form of oppression. Be, like you said, 20 times better so that nobody can attack you, which I mean, God, what a standard to live up to. Yeah, no, it was hard. And I had to get to the point where I was just like, and I think with the rise of social media talking about this, it does it makes it so much easier. It, it, it does it makes it not so much easier actually. It makes it a bit easier because we are talking about privilege. We are talking about things like thin privilege and white privilege, and we are talking about people making a space for diversity or for people from you know different ethnic minorities. Whereas I guess you know in my when my parents were growing up, like, you know, my dad was born in Jamaica, he came, he came to England, my mum was born here, but her parents are Jamaican. But when they were growing up, you know, no one was talking about that. It was just flat out racism. So they've got a lot of fear. And, you know, sometimes even when I see my dad, I can see that he's still got some of that inner anxiety for me and, and about, about just about m- my space as a black woman. Um, you know, and trying to navigate through society. And I think just going through, just going through all of that, I felt like, okay, you know, even though I'm scared to do this, because I, you know, I am, I was petrified to do my training and be visible on social media, but going through all of that, I just thought, no, actually, it's important for me to make a space 
for myself and be seen and, and be heard and to, you know, add a little bit of diversity to the space. And when I did the training, I said to Evelyn that, oh gosh, like I'm really, I'm really scared. Like there's nobody that looks like me. And she was just like, no, we need you. We need you in this space. And that's great when you have other people, you know, giving you a platform and, you know, especially even us doing this, you know, be, be given the platform to, to talk about my experiences. Yeah, well, I'm so happy to to have you here talking about this because I so agree that the intuitive eating space and to some extent the sort of larger anti-diet space in general, which encompasses health at every size and fat positivity, is pretty white. And also, like especially with intuitive eating, doesn't have very many people of size at all in the position of intuitive eating counselor. So I feel like it it really is so meaningful for you to be in that role. And I can totally imagine how scary it would be to feel like you're really sticking your neck out as like the only person who looks like you in this position, but also you're opening the door for so many people who are maybe considering going into this work or thinking about it or who just want to find an intuitive eating counselor who gets it, who gets their experience and maybe doesn't resonate completely with people who don't or just wants to have that awareness that, you know, she's been there too. And being a person of color or being a black person going through this world is inevitably different than being a white person going through this world. And so I think we need counselors who have those lived experiences too, who can bring that into their work. Yeah, definitely. I agree. And I, and I feel like they're there might be some fear amongst other people. I know I had it and it's the fear that will people come to you because you're not the norm. And sometimes when you are different, your people don't validate you as much. It's like, oh, you know, you're stupid. You don't know what you're talking about because you're not thin or whatever. You know, there is that fear. But when I gave up diets, it gave me so much more and it gave me it gave me, I guess, the push to be vulnerable and say, you know what, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but, you know, all I can do is say I'm here and, and show up and that's what I'm going to do. And I'm really passionate about intuitive eating and the anti-diet movement and it being a, a diverse space. So I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. We so need you here. <laughs> It's so important. What have you found is helpful in overcoming some of that conditioning that you had growing up of like, have to be exceptional, have to be so academic and perfect and have to be thin to in order to fit in with white culture? How have you started to unpack that or untangle that for yourself in order to show up the way you are now? Because you're showing up in the body that you have, you're showing up in a larger body, in a black body and saying like, I'm here, I'm doing this work, I'm taking my space, even if it feels scary. And like, that is so incredibly brave and vulnerable, but I'm sure it wasn't always possible. It probably didn't always feel possible to do that. Yeah, I think one thing that did help me was actually having therapy and voicing just some of the the fears that I had working through some of the you know beliefs that I had about myself um, and having a space where I was validated and I could talk about things that I was scared of I think that was one thing and another thing was surrounding myself in the anti-diet community so being involved in the body positive community being involved in the 
anti-diet community and talking to other people, making friends with other people, other people who look like me, that have gone through the same experiences as me. And just knowing that this is a work in progress and sometimes that there's going to be lows, there's going to be highs in this, but I need to make sure that I am looking after myself and even though I do feel like, okay, I need to show up and be heard and I want people to open the door for me that I do need to look after myself in this process. So, and I think that's where the therapy really came into it because I guess as I was breaking down beliefs and so forth, so I was learning to be vulnerable and that vulnerability, I think really helped me to say, I can only be who I am. I can't be somebody who I'm not. Some people are going to like me, some people are not. And I think I use some of like Brené Brown's teachings to help with that. You know, I like how she talks about vulnerability and courage. And I think some of that also helped. I would say a combination of like therapy, being vulnerable, surrounding myself in the community, um, almost always facing my fears and just recognizing that there's going to be highs and lows in this. And it sounds like, too, kind of recognizing that vulnerability is somewhat draining. I know it has been for me, you know, speaking publicly and stuff like can feel it's it's great. And I love putting myself out there in this way. But also I need private moments and self-care and to have like certain aspects of my life be private. And it sounds like maybe that's the case for you, too, that you're feeling like you put yourself out there in the ways that feel authentic and that require some vulnerability and courage, but then also you're not constantly doing that because that would totally deplete you. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think, yeah, that's where the looking after myself really came in because I guess, you know, I'm not as active as other people might be like on, you know, I don't have a Twitter account, not on Facebook, only on Instagram. And I don't post that much because you do like you said you do have to look after yourself as well as you go through this because even though I'm doing this work and it's really important to me I'm still a human and I feel like all of us that have had like a diet in history you know we are in recovery we're still exposed to diet mentality we're still exposed to difficult messages at times so you know, you, you do have to look after yourself as well and, and make sure that you're practicing self-care. And, and what I mean by that is shutting off social media once in a while, <laughs> you know, going to bed at a, a decent time. You know, if you're having a an Instagram block and you can't, you don't, don't know what to post, that's okay. Turn it off. Mm-hmm. So making sure that I'm doing those things as well. That is so huge. I think about that a lot because social media can just take up all your time if you let it. Like literally, I used to spend hours on social media and feel so scattered at the end of a day because I was like, what have I done with this day? I like checked a few things off my list, but I also feel like there are these blocks of time that are just that were just sucked down the drain, you know, and it it doesn't it's sometimes it's nourishing. But a lot of the time, I think it's just kind of like feels like spinning your wheels or performative or. I don't know. It's not great. So I really have boundaries for myself now around how long I'll spend on it. And I have one day a week where like for a few hours, I'll kind of schedule some posts and write some things. And then a few times a week, I'll like check in on various groups and stuff or the groups that I manage. And I rarely post anything personal anymore because it's just I feel like that is such a recipe for 
going down that rabbit hole of like, who liked my post? How many people liked it? Who's commenting? How do I respond? Blah, 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 blah. And (laughs) it's just, I can't. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. And I think especially when you are somebody who is holding people's, their problems, their trauma, the difficulties they have with food, difficulties they have with their relationship. You do have to come back and nourish yourself. It is important. I, I like, you know, I think it's just hearing you say, you know, these are the, I, I spent a couple of hours on doing this and that, like having your boundaries is, is extremely important. Yeah, those boundaries are huge. I feel like that's really such an important flip side of vulnerability is boundaries, because especially in this day and age of social media where vulnerability is so encouraged and people who like put it all out there on social media or on their blogs or podcasts are are rewarded in a lot of ways for that. But it it also is so draining to do that. And if you do that constantly, you're going to burn out. So having boundaries too to say like, okay, here's the context in which I'm going to do this. Here's the way in which I'm going to talk about this. And then I need to like shut it off and go live my life and be a human being in the world and be grounded and be doing things that are in real life. Yeah, I agree. And I think having boundaries was something, again, that I thought the the anti-diet community taught me, you know, is that it's okay to say no. It's okay to say I'm going to shut off. It's okay to look after yourself. That is okay. Because again, I feel like sometimes when you're in your diet culture or you're, you know, you've, you have an eating difficulty or have, you're just having difficulties with food and your body image. Sometimes I feel like boundaries go out, go out the window. It's really difficult to say no to things or to put yourself first. And the anti-diet community taught me it's okay to say no. It's okay to shut off. It's okay to do what you want to, to look after yourself. That's awesome. That's really nice that it taught you that. And I feel like it's, it really is kind of an essential practice in healing your relationship with food to be able to set boundaries and one that diet culture takes away from us. Cause I think you have like, I think in order to set boundaries, I've talked about this on the podcast before of like, in order to set boundaries, you have to feel worthy of setting boundaries. You have to feel worthy of saying no, because if you don't feel worthy, then it's just like, well, who cares what happens to me? My opinion doesn't matter. My needs don't matter. I exist for the benefit of others, or I derive my worth from whatever I can give to others rather than, no, here are my needs. Here's where I begin and end. And here's where other people begin and end. And like, let me not get engulfed by other people. So that sense of self-worth that comes from recovering your relationship with food, but it's also just so, I feel like the anti-diet work just feeds into everything else in life too. I always say intuitive eating, intuitive everything, because once you start thinking about your needs and your desires with food, inevitably that opens up space to do that, to use that same sort of inquiry with other things in life. And then I think inevitably that helps to open up space for boundaries because you realize, oh, I actually really like this thing or actually really don't like this thing and let me say yes and no to the things that I want or don't want. Definitely and diet culture takes that away it takes that away completely because you don't know what you like what you don't you just know what you're supposed to like and what you're supposed to avoid so you know I definitely agree with that. Yeah totally it takes you completely away from your wants because every time you have a want the diet mentality comes in and is like nope you're supposed to eat this. Or 
nope, this isn't allowed. It's got to be this diet version of the thing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you become really disconnected from what you truly love and you become disconnected from what truly makes you happy and what is truly, I guess, you know, also truly important to you. And part of this journey is really looking within yourself and thinking, actually, what makes me happy? What do I enjoy? What do I like? When do I need to say no? And really coming back to trusting yourself in in every sense. Yeah, that sense of trust gets so ripped away with diet culture. And I love Be Nourished, Hillary Canavy and Dana Sturdivant's idea of body trust, because that's what it is. You know, it's like we have to come home to the ability to trust our bodies in order to heal our relationships with food, but also in order to really connect with our intuition about everything else, too. It kind of starts with trusting those feelings that are going on in the body, the sensations that tell us what's up, you know, because I think a lot of times we might not know what we're feeling intellectually, but we feel something in the body. And then that can sort of lead down a path of that sort of somatic experiencing idea of like, what, what is this feeling trying to tell me or what is this evoking? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Well, so good to talk with you, Davinia. I really, really loved having you on the show and having you share your story with us. It's such a powerful one. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So tell us where people can find you online and learn more about your work. So you can find me at com, and that's spelled D-E-V-I-N-I-A and then Noel is in French Christmas, N-O-E-L.com. And then on Instagram, I'm at the Diet Boycott. I love that name. Such a good handle. <laughs> and you have an amazing logo too. I love it. <laughs> oh, thank you. And thanks to you, Christy, for having me here. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's been so good. You've just been with me every step of my journey. So thank you. <laughs> Aww, thank you so much. I'm really honored. So that is our show. Thanks again so much to Davinia Noel for joining us on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you've gotten something out of this podcast, please take a moment to subscribe and review it in your podcast provider of choice. You can just go to christyharrison.com slash subscribe to see all the places where you can do that. That's christyharrison.com slash subscribe. If you're looking for some practical tips to help you get started on the anti-diet path for yourself, you can grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Just go to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, plus a full transcript, head over to christyharrison.com slash 201. That's christyharrison.com slash 201. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. This episode was brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals, which is now reopened for enrollment. If you're ready to make peace with food, break free from diet culture, and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. A big thanks to our editor and engineer, Mike Lalonde, our community and content associate, Kimmy Singh, and our administrative assistant, Julianne Watasek, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into producing this show every week. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble, and our theme song was written and performed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Mm-hmm.